Welcome to the New Faces of Democracy podcast, the show featuring ordinary people doing extraordinary things to stand up for our democracy. I'm your host, Nancy Bynum. This podcast celebrates people who have transformed their lives since 2016 and are transforming our political landscape by organizing, running for office, and generally stepping outside of their comfort zones. I hope their stories will inspire you to take action on your own. Head on over to newfacesofdemocracy.org for easy links to subscribe, follow on social media, and to get more inspiration. This week, I'm speaking with Mark Bergman, a lawyer and Democrat based in London who since 2017 has been keeping his fellow Democrats abroad engaged in the political process here at home. Mark organizes conference calls with candidates, elected officials, and democracy groups. His calls have featured senators, state attorneys general, candidates for the House and Senate, and other prominent American political figures like James Comey and James Carville. Mark and I discuss why it's so important to keep Democrats overseas informed and engaged, and how, despite the sorry state of U.S. influence abroad, these calls have instilled in him faith in our power to change things and optimism for the future. If you want to sign up for Mark's newsletter, you can find the email address in the podcast notes. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Mark Bergman. Okay, well, Mark Bergman, welcome to the podcast, and welcome to being the interviewee for a change. Nancy, it's a pleasure. Thank you very, very much. I'm looking forward to it. So I'd like to start by you telling me a little bit about your background and what led you to the work you're doing today. I've been a corporate partner, the New York law firm, Paul Weiss, for close to 38 years. I've been in London now almost 20. But I think more importantly to the story is that I have now spent half my life outside the United States. My father was a U.S. Foreign Service officer. Uh, My mother, for some period of time while we were overseas, was a journalist. So I grew up with politics. And more importantly, I grew up understanding or thinking I understood what it meant to be an American overseas and how we fit into the world. I have been involved with the DNC probably now about eight years, a member of their National Finance Committee. I came to this as a result of support for Barack Obama, to which I thank my late partner, Ted Sorensen, who had been working with then-Senator Obama in the early days. And I have tried to play my part since that time, largely fundraising, But fundraising, in a sense, is perhaps only half of it, and there may ultimately be fundraising aspects to everything that I do, but I think perhaps what animates me most is about engagement. I think it's important for Americans to understand, certainly those overseas, to understand how others view us, what role the United States can play, the forces for good, and all that that can imply. So it's about engagement. It's about keeping people engage with what is going on, in part, to be fair, to avoid people feeling like ATMs, as was the case some years ago when uh, party candidates would simply turn up and let's do a fundraiser. So as you know, some of the things that we do, straightforward fundraising, at least in the days before COVID-19, getting candidates to come over. But The other half is this engagement effort that I have been hosting now since the inauguration. So tell me about it. It's conference calls. It's a newsletter. Is there a name for it? No, it's not (laughs) branded. I probably should have thought about that early. Well, it is branded in the sense that the email always looks alike. There's a format 
this started literally, I don't know, probably three weeks after the inauguration, following a conversation we had in our living room, not unlike conversations that I think took place over many, many days in the aftermath of the 2016 elections. What can we do? And where do we go? Where do we go next? So I wanted to do two things. As I mentioned, one is to give people a sense of engagement, but I also wanted to have people get a sense as to what was going on. And so who could I tap into to do that? First call that I hosted was with Senator Blumenthal. And this was around the Gorsuch hearings, fast forward to now with the tremendous outcome in the Supreme Court written by Justice Gorsuch. But in any event, going back to that very first call, I wanted people to get a sense as to what was going on in Washington, what was going on in the Senate. Senator Blumenthal on the Judiciary Committee, I thought, could tell us what was going on from his perspective. So I hosted that first call. And shortly thereafter, we had the travel ban, and I reached out to Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healy, who not only gave us a sense as to what was going on, but also gave us a sense of positive momentum, of a willingness to engage with the administration. And this was in the very early days after the inauguration. And with the travel ban being what it was, to have the Attorney General Massachusetts not only forcefully arguing for the rule of law, but describing how she was working with attorneys general in other states. As the emails were coming in afterwards saying, thank you, it's making me feel better. I realized that I had something here and that continued on. I just hosted my 135th call. Started out doing them once a month, then twice a month, once a week. And I believe in September of 2017, I realized that there was an opportunity which I hadn't really intended was to focus on candidates. Up until then, it had been incumbents, one from sitting senators and OFA, DNC, and the like. I also had Kazir Khan. I just thought it was great to get great Americans on the phone to give people a sense as to what they were seeing. I believe Beto O'Rourke was the first opportunity to have a candidate. Doug Jones followed. And by January of election year, so 2018, it was full-on candidates once a week up until probably late August, early September. And then it was two candidates a week, three candidates a week, right up until the election. Kamala Harris was going to be my last call, and she encouraged me to have yet one more call. So the Monday before the election, we had Heidi Hadcamp as the last call of that season. I will say when it was all over, I thought, do I continue to do this? It takes a fair amount of my time, which I don't have a whole lot of spare time given everything else I do, including my day job. But people reached out and asked, when was I going to start? And candidates reached out. Lucy McBath was perhaps the first one. She won her race, and I guess it took three days after the election for her victory to be announced. It was announced. She called that afternoon to thank me for my support. Then she said, I got a target on my back. The GOP is coming after me, so would you do another call? In any event, I picked that up, and I think since the outbreak of the pandemic, I've been doing two calls a week. It gets me to 135. That's a lot. What's the format of each call? Very simple. It's 30 minutes. And I try to stick to that 30-minute format. One, because candidates, if they are candidates or they are 
serving members of the House of Senate. We have plenty of other things to do. And having hosted as many events in person as I have, and noting how quickly the staffer who's in charge of moving the candidate along will start fidgeting when we're running up against the time limit. 30 minutes, occasionally we've run over. Some of my calls have gone as long as 45 minutes when they're just great questions and great conversations. I introduce the candidate and we'll have before the call, and if not right in the introduction, given the person who is speaking some sense as to where they ought to run with their discussion, and they speak for 12 to 15 minutes. I then curate questions, and that may go for seven or eight minutes. And then the last seven, however, I turn it over to people on the phone. I tend to know who has called in. I can see that on my app. And there's some who will, I know, jump in right away with questions. And so I play to the audience, if you will. And how many listeners do you usually have? It's all across the board. The last 15, 20 calls, probably in the range of 25 to 30. In some cases, it's been fewer. Mayor Pete was 102. Jim Comey was in the high 80s. And then I think some of the sitting senators, high 60s, 70s, particularly when somebody is speaking about an issue, whether it was impeachment, whether it was Russia, that grabbed a particular headline. I've also been very lucky. I happen to have connected with then-candidate Doug Jones days before the whole issue around his opponent, Roy Moore, came out. And so people had an opportunity within days to hear from Doug. Trying to think, there have been a few others where I've just happened to luck out to have arranged something. And by the way, in most cases, my calls, my pipeline will be six or eight weeks at a time. So right now, the last person, the last two who I scheduled, I scheduled a week ago for middle of July. So it's sort of subject to the vagaries of what happens between now and the middle of July, which the way things work these days, God only knows. Exactly. God only knows. But I just want to highlight one thing, which to me is really, really cool, is that 25 to 30 people on a call going, I mean, for instance, I listened in on your call last week with Cal Cunningham running for Senate in North Carolina. If you're telling me there are 25 to 30 people on that call, that's pretty amazing because that gives people a really good shot of asking somebody who is running for the U.S. Senate who has a shot of winning. He's not just some guy. I mean, you have a shot of asking a question. 102 people for Mayor Pete, that's nothing when you think of how many people, if you're in the States, were going to see him speak or Jim Comey and that people potentially can get their question in if they hop on it fast enough, I suppose, during the call. So I think that's one really cool aspect of your conference calls. They're relatively intimate and they feel that way. And for instance, that one call I listened to last week with Cal Cunningham was, now I feel connected to him. And I knew who he was. I'd read stuff about him. But actually hearing someone speak, even for 15 minutes giving their spiel on a conference call, you can tell a lot about that person and you can get a really good vibe. And to hear the words come out of their mouth in that context, I don't know. I can't describe it. But there's some sort of alchemy, some kind of magic that happens that I think is really unusual. 
So let's talk about your audience a little. Who are these people for the most part? They are all committed Democrats. First of all, they're all American. They could all vote. We're very conscious of FEC rules and so on, though I am not raising money. There will often be asks, and I will come back to the email aspect of all of this. But in terms of the audience, there are people who have been on calls since day one, people who I have known here. It started out principally London-based with callers in various other cities in Europe. Some people moved back to the U.S. Some people heard by word of mouth. I should also point out that there's another benefit to my approach, which is I hold on to all the emails. I often, though not all the time, am asked by the campaigns, please, could you send the list of the participants? Answer no. I hold on to those. But because people aren't paying to participate in the call, there's a certain anonymity, which I respect. I don't collect money, but I do make sure that people are aware that there are needs that need to be financed as for all of these different campaigns. Mark, your engagement program is more than conference calls. You also have a newsletter. Tell me about that. So I send out an email every week. I could spend, I know, four or five hours on a weekend preparing that email. That email lists each of the upcoming calls. It lists the pipeline, however many people have committed to dates. Occasionally, I have candidates who've agreed they wanted or others who want to participate, and I just don't have a date yet. And I put something about each candidate, but I also have links for each of the campaigns. And by the way, campaigns could be individuals. Links could be for some of the democracy integrity groups, American Oversight, which is, in my view, the leading FOIA investigator litigator in the country. It could be some of these leadership civil rights groups and so on. So they too, I treat them as candidates, if you will. I will list links. I'll have a separate section on focus if I know that there are candidates who could use some additional help in terms of fundraising. And I may have a little help to know that from DCCC or DSCC. I may put in some profiles if there's some interesting articles that are out there, links to pieces that I think people will enjoy or benefit from reading. I'm very much aware of the fact that people are inundated before the pandemic. They were inundated since the pandemic. They're still inundated. And I like my email to serve as a resource for people that don't have the opportunity to spend the time to either speak to candidates or to otherwise have information flowing. So that email, that goes out to a far broader number, I think right now, 762 people. On the emails? The emails. And any of those people can call in if they want to. All I have to do is RSVP and on they go. Given that most, sounds like a lot of your listeners are overseas still, some of them were, does that change their focus, what they're interested in hearing about? Or is it the same as me sitting in New York? What is interesting is is that while my list may have far more people overseas, chances are that on a per-call basis, it may be 50-50, people overseas, people in the States. The other interesting thing about being in London 
is that we have people from all over the country. So I will have listeners who will RSVP for a call because they're from Alaska. And I had Al Gross on the call. Or Doug Jones because they're from Alabama. So people that have a particular connection from either the state where they grew up in or the state where they last lived before they moved overseas, that may well be of interest to them. And remember, too, that for some people, having the opportunity to hear from a candidate wherever may well give them something to say to their relatives or friends in that particular district and give people an opportunity that they would not otherwise have to hear the comments. So to your question, foreign policy may be relevant for certain people which would be more, the topic may be more relevant because people are here. But by and large, what I am offering and what I think people, I hope people appreciate, is that I'm asking for very much of local color. And by that, I mean, help us understand what it means in the days when people were knocking on doors to be knocking on doors in rural Michigan or rural New Jersey or whatever. and. I'm very interested around demographics, whether it's women going into the 2018 cycle. I had the benefit of having had a hugely informative conversation on my, maybe my eighth or ninth call with Wendy Davis, who's now running. But in those days, she wasn't running. So in that cycle, but yet Wendy identified a theme that became a regular feature for most of my calls, which was white women, college-educated, 40 to 55-year-old living in the suburbs. And she identified that, again, weeks into the Trump administration, so well before any election uptake for the 2018 cycle. So I use that in a variety of circumstances, a variety of questions around, help me understand the demographic. And is it only women? Is that from the conservative side, we will often hear, and it's usually a third, a third, a third, Democrat, Republican, but how issues are resonating. I will also say that a number of my callers were service candidates. So military, national security, law enforcement, the intelligence community. And that provides a huge opportunity to understand what motivates people. An early and regular feature for my calls was, why are you doing this? What caused you to jump in? And that was fascinating because very few, I could probably count on one hand, number of callers who said, I always wanted to be a politician. Instead it was, I woke up the day after the election and I had to explain to my two nine-year-old twins that the country they woke up in the day after election was not the country they went to sleep in. So variations on that theme, particularly though not exclusively among service candidates, this was their time. They felt that they needed to do something. Lauren Underwood, a nurse in Illinois who ran and won very much around healthcare and pre-existing conditions. See, there were family issues. And the number of times that I have heard that pre-existing conditions and other aspects of the ACA is personal. 
It's personal because they had a child that almost died. It's personal because of the economic impact of being one accident, one elective surgery away from bankruptcy or mandated. So it provides, going back to your question about people overseas, it provides a great, almost a slice of life. And one day you could be hearing from somebody in rural Kentucky, Josh Hicks, and the next day you could be hearing from Mikey Sherrill in New Jersey or Andy Kim or Jason Crow. So across the country, and what I try to do is to connect the dots. What are people seeing? Right. And to your earlier point, I'm sure it helps keep people engaged when they're living physically far away if they are hearing from people in Kentucky and in Michigan and in North Carolina and wherever, they're much more likely to be engaged in politics, I assume. Going back to your first question, as an American overseas, it is always impossible to be disconnected from politics. I think you have to go out of your way to avoid because as Americans overseas, whether we want to be or not, we are ambassadors. And when things are going well, people will note that. When things aren't going well, people will note that. One of the fascinating things about being in Europe is that non-Americans follow what goes on in the United States with a tremendous amount of attention. And this, by the way, predates Trump. It probably predated George W., I remember being overseas when Carter won and having somebody come up and tell me that the election had been called before I realized myself that it happened. So in contrast to the United States, most people will struggle to know who the leaders are other than perhaps Angela Merkel or Boris Johnson, but non-Americans. And the other thing I will say is that even among Europeans who would be disinclined to show a whole lot of emotion. When it comes to U.S. politics and certain aspects of politics, such as gun violence, people get quite exercised about it. They're angry, and they're angry not because it's going to touch them, but because they expect better from us. That's so interesting. And so when you're part of those conversations day in and day out, you can't really step away from, I suppose you could just say, I'm not paying attention, I haven't lived there in years, and whatever else, but that's unusual. So most people are very connected. So it's the opposite of what you may have thought. Even though you're far away, you're probably more tied in. Well, keep in mind too, that virtually everybody who's overseas had to make a decision to move overseas. Their job, or whether they decided to look for a job overseas, or like many of us, we transferred over with the job. Usually there's a choice. So you're making a conscious decision to move out of the country for some period of time with an expectation you're going to go back. But just that thought process probably puts you in a different place. So this question is really for you as somebody who has spent so much time in your life outside of the U.S., been looking sort of from the outside in. I heard someone say recently that Trump has presided over the complete dismantling of U.S. influence in the world. Is that something you would agree with? Is that something you're feeling? And do you feel like it's irreparable or we can make it up with Biden? So the first part of it is absolutely true. And whether you read studies, whether you read opinion polls, 
whether you just talk to people in the street, wherever it is, I talk to taxi drivers, whatever conversations you have. And that's before I feed into, as I am associated with various foreign policy think tanks and whatever else. And it has been a constant conversation since really the day of the election, if not the inauguration. So no doubt that our influence, and it goes back to this point I was saying earlier with the number of people who are following with tremendous interest, almost obsessive interest, and a concern that borders on anger because they do expect that we will do better, that we can do better because we do set at the risk of overgeneralization. But I do think that for many people, we're expected to take the moral high ground. And if we're not taking the moral high ground, then that's going to create issues for them sooner or later. So when we are not intervening in crises, when we are not lending our moral voice, when we have pulled out of the Paris Accord, where we have ripped up an agreement that we entered into, there's nothing more, as a matter of international law, the sanctity of international treaties. There are significant issues around that, and that has been a feature now for the entire time of this administration. Assuming that the Democrats win, and by that I mean that not only do we win the White House, but we win the Senate as well, we are going to have a tall order. But I think that we will have the benefit of the doubt that people with Joe Biden's connections around the world, he knows world leaders, I suspect that it will be a little easier. However, there's a challenge here. That challenge is, and this would have been true pre-COVID-19, which is that we weren't going to be going back. It's not clear what one goes back to from a foreign policy standpoint. If you look even at the Obama administration, go back to the Atlantic article that Obama spoke at length about the role of America in the world, it has changed. So yes, this administration has ripped up 70 years of the Truman Doctrine. And that doctrine, by the way, and all of those institutions that have been an essential element of the post-war era were American creations. But pre-COVID-19, clearly that we weren't going to be going back to the way it always was. And certainly in the post-COVID-19 world, And some may say there may not be any such thing as a post-COVID-19 world because we'll be living in that in, so it's not after, but rather in. There are a number of things that we're going to need, we're going to have to address. And if we even look at the events of the last few weeks, there are things that we all need to address. So it will be a tall order. There will be plenty of things for the new administration to deal with. And that is a regular topic of conversation here. This is a huge personal commitment on your part. You talked about just the newsletter alone, taking four to five hours on a weekend and then setting up all the calls and conducting them and all the back office kind of stuff related to that. What keeps you going? What's most rewarding? The conversations are the most rewarding. And for me, there are two sets of conversations or the conversations that I have with the full group, but I often have a conversation with the particular person, particularly candidates who are running for office beforehand. And it has instilled in me a tremendous faith 
in the power of individuals to change things. And if I had to generalize, generalizing that freshman class of members of the House, the red to blue, the 43 seats that were flipped, there was an authenticity that in a sense, begins to explain why they were successful, why they won. Remember, these aren't the people who grew up wanting to be politicians. And if you are tired of politics generally, if you are tired certainly of an incumbent to have somebody coming along, not only a fresh face, but with fresh ideas. The number of times that I heard from people saying, I was the first Democrat in these living rooms. And by that, they didn't mean the first candidate who was a Democrat, the first Democrat in those living rooms. And the conversations around that and how it was that people connected with them is A, hugely insightful, but it's also very, I found it a basis for a lot of optimism. So I had to say it's the ability, almost unguarded, to have conversations with people who are doing this all for the right reasons. What is interesting is that in the calls, you get very little of the canned statements because I don't give them enough time to start repeating their canned statements. It's only speaking for 10 minutes and then we have a conversation. And the other is, by the way, it's not there to, there are no got you moments. This is all about letting people present themselves in their best light, because that then generates all kinds of interesting tidbits, if you will. So they stop thinking about, well, I've got to get my talking points out. Instead, it's, I'm talking about my demographics. I'm talking about healthcare. I'm talking about the difficulty or lack less difficulty around gun violence. I'm talking about how I am able to connect with veterans and the importance of connecting with veterans. So I guess it's the political equivalent of unplugged. Is there any way if a listener wanted to get on one of your calls? They should just email me. But here's the thing. I'm very much a believer in the more the merrier. And oftentimes people will ask me, is it okay if I tell other people about your calls? Is it okay? If I send people your way, absolutely, because it's the more people that can benefit from this, the better. I agree completely. Well, Mark Bergman, this has been great. It's been so interesting hearing your perspective, dispelling a lot of notions that I had about people who live outside the U.S. and what people are thinking of us these days. So I really appreciate you joining me on the podcast. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. I appreciate the questions and... Thank you for your interest. Thank you for listening. New Faces of Democracy is created and produced by me, Nancy Bynum. And in addition to being the host, I'm also the CEO, the CFO, and the administrative assistant. If you enjoyed this episode, please help New Faces of Democracy grow by subscribing on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're looking for more inspiration, check out my other profiles at newfacesofdemocracy.org and follow New Faces of Democracy on Instagram and Facebook.